Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of And What Do You Do? My name is Ed and I'm speaking to people about their job. There's not much more to it than that, but hopefully you get just a, a little snapshot of someone else's life and it might interest you. This time I spoke with Anna, a curator at the Clockmakers Museum, based inside the Science Museum in London, although actually it turns out to be a bit more complicated than that. We're going to jump straight in, pretty much. A fair warning, there are a couple of little pops and clicks and thuds that make it through into the recording, but there's nothing too troublesome. Well, without further ado, let's see what Anna has to say. Okay, well, I have a guest with me, but tell me, who are you and what do you do? Hi, uh, Ed. My name is Anna Rolls, and I am... Um, well, I suppose if you say, what do I do? My job title is that I am a curator. Um, and in particular, I am the curator of the Clockmakers Museum, which is in London. But I guess from the perspective of what one does, uh, there are many things that people do in this world. But um, that's what I do professionally. Uh, so tell me a little bit more. Is, is the Clockmakers Museum a, is it a separate museum, a separate building or part of a larger organisation? How is it set up? Okay, so the Clockmakers Museum is um, a slightly unusual museum in that it is uh, a small independently accredited museum, but it's housed um, currently inside the Science Museum, which is, of course, a national museum um, over in South Kensington in, La- in London. Um, but it's only been there since 2015, and before that it, w- it had its own um, space at the Guildhall um, in the City of London. Um, and it's a museum that uh, belongs to the Worshipful Company of Clockmakers, who are one of the livery companies of London. And it's, um, yeah, that's all I have to say about that. So, I mean, livery companies themselves are quite unusual things. So how did this, why are the two things separate? I mean, livery companies are very old and are quite an unusual organisation style i suppose people outside of london might not be so familiar with them so how did how did the clockmakers museum become a separate thing so the livery company the worshipful company of clockmakers has been in existence since 1631 um it's not actually particularly old when you look at london um livery companies or guilds but they've basically never had a hall. Uh, a lot of the livery companies have um, their own halls uh, from where they would conduct their business. Um, and the clockmakers never had one. And they would always sort of move from premise to premise, conducting their affairs. Um, they would quite often borrow other halls or they would conduct their affairs in sort of inns and taverns. And they, in the 19th century, at the beginning of the 19th century, decided that it would be good to start collecting um, a collection of um, specimens, as they called them, and books that related to their art, which is, of course, clockmaking and watchmaking. Um, And I don't think they ever had in mind that they would produce this huge collection or that it would uh, form the nucleus of a museum, but it was essentially their, their sort of property. I don't really know why I've mentioned the halls, but in, in some respects, you know, it's grown into a much bigger thing where a lot of livery companies sort of thrive on on their halls and their ability to use their halls for public occasions today we thrive on the fact that we have this amazing collection um, that is accessible to the public 
And it's been accessible to the public since the 1870s. So it's been on display for a very, very long time for people to come and see. But when they first started it, I don't think they really had that necessarily in mind. They were just interested in in, um, preserving the, the art of the subject. And forgive me, because I, maybe I'm, I'm going to get this uh, very wrong. Is there a difference between a clockmaker and a horologist? Or are they the same thing? Yeah, I think, well, I mean, the Worshipful Company of Clockmakers is a sort of generic um, term for anyone, I guess, who is sort of interested in the art of horology. But a horologist could be someone who studies time. Um, so it wouldn't necessarily be someone who. I mean, well, even just using the term maker suggests that you're there making clocks. And of course, um, a lot of people, for example, those who are involved in the company today don't make clocks. But but if you go to the basics of, of, of the trade and making, then there were, of course, people who were making sundials, which are still timekeepers. And then there's, there's a sort of lots of allied trades that would be associated with horology and the study of time that don't necessarily involve making. And of course, you know, the, the company is called the Worshipful Company of Clockmakers, but of course there's watchmaking. Um, but the company also encompasses other arts relating to the trade, such as engraving, and some of the mathematical instruments as well would be uh, fall under that category. But if you move away from the company and, and, and the, the, the clockmakers um, as a livery guild, the term clockmaking is more applied to someone who repairs clocks and, and does conservation or restoration and potentially makes clocks as well. So as, as the curator of the collection, are you, uh, are you just maintaining at the moment or are you trying to expand the collection? You said that you know, they, they weren't sure in the first place that it would even get as big as this, but are, are you looking to expand? Of course. I mean, I think any museum um, is never going to sort of have its collection and go, right, that's it. No more stuff. We're not taking anything um, on. But right. of course, most museums are, um, they have the problems and the constraints that are essentially resources. And, um, and the biggest one of those is where do you put everything? So of course, you have to have an ability to limit what you bring into the collection um, based on what your resources are. So, you know, some national museums are building amazing sort of storage facilities that will allow them not only to kind of look after what they've currently got better, but but increase increase their capacity to collect as well. And the same goes for display. You know, obviously you want to be able to put uh, things onto display so that people can see them. And we try and put as much as we can on display uh, that's important to our collection. And we're quite unusual in that respect in that, you know, the, the vast majority of the, kind of the important pieces in our collection are on display as opposed to being in store. But they do, there's always going to be the problem of if you want to put something in uh, to the collection, you can't just get rid of something else. You know, the part of being an accredited museum is that you have to you have to have sort of policies to show that you're going to look after the collection um, indefinitely and preserve it for, you know, for, for, for the benefit of people. So if you take too much stuff on and then suddenly you need to get rid of it, it's not that straightforward. You can't just throw it away and put it in the bin. Um, in terms of the collection, do you spend more, well, resources, I suppose? Is it sort of backwards looking in that you're trying to acquire things, say, 
oh, well, you know, this piece is coming up for auction. It's, you know, it was made in the 1800s and it's important because of such and such. Or are you looking at sort of contemporary contemporary uh, developments in clock making? Again, I don't really have the jargon, but, you know, are, are you looking at companies that are producing clocks today and going, well, we know that that is a new innovation and it's important to get one of them in, uh, you know, on day one? Sure, uh, both really. Um, there is a, a, a sort of collections development plan to sort of specify what is missing in terms of the collection, in terms of what what we want to have to sort of tell our story, and that will relate to stuff from the past. But part of that is also, you know, our, our plan is to kind of to tell the story of clock making today. And um, one of the things I haven't really mentioned about what the museum is about is it, it concentrates on the profession and the trade and its history with a particular emphasis on London. Right. And, and then to an extent, um, Great Britain. And so today, obviously, clock making isn't necessarily a big trade that's, that's still in existence um, in London anyway. I mean, when you think of... Uh, watches in particular most people think of Switzerland as where you'll go to buy your sort of your best or or affordable Mm. timekeeper not you know one doesn't immediately think of London but once upon a time London was the place that you went to go and get your your best piece and our gallery uh, sort of tells that story Um, that's that's one of the focuses of the gallery is to tell the story of the sort of rise and fall of London as um, as that sort of trading capital but today I think the focus on 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 the story today is really about how it's not a dead art and that there are independent makers still working in this country and that there is a renewed interest in it and I mean I think that's uh, particularly important for the company as well because of course their members the people who make up the the worshipful company are people within the trade and so it's for them it's very important to show that the trade is still alive um, and that there is scope for young people to get into it whether to make something from scratch which we you know we might show in our museum some of the modern makers or whether it's the fact that they'll go and get a job in the trade which might mean working for a Swiss company but yeah absolutely we are we are very keen to sort of promote the the trade today as it were I mean, in terms of being a curator, I imagine that there's lots of, or I imagine that there's a a sort of a difference between what you value and what someone else uh, who doesn't really know the ins and outs of the clocks value. That that that's a bit vague. What I, what I mean to say is, if you have a lot of money, you might spend that money on a watch, and it's a sort of luxury piece. It's a piece of jewellery, essentially, and you might be spent. Well, you could spend who knows how much money. Is it the case that quite a lot of the time you're looking at those incredibly expensive watches and thinking, well, they're not actually that interesting from a clockmaker's point of view? You know, they're expensive because, uh, you know, there's good quality materials, but there's also some diamonds attached to it or something like that. Are there sort of gems you think, well, as a curator, I'm more interested in this? Well, I mean, I think that's what makes the, 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 um, the subject so interesting is that there are so many facets to to this story of of what a watch or a clock 
um, is for. I mean, you know, at the very basic level, they're there to tell the time, but there's so much more than that. And as you've just said, a lot of them are works of art and pieces of jewellery and fashion statements, you know, uh, again, particularly with watches. Uh, one might wear the the best watch to kind of show off how well one's doing in life. Um, and that's always been the case, I think, you know, from, right from when watches sort of first developed, people were, were using them as a kind of status symbol. And in fact, more so because they weren't particularly good timekeepers. Um, or more to the point, time wasn't so important, you know, in the way it is today, where you need to know everything to the sort of last second in terms of catching your train or or so on. But there's so many other parts to the story, and you know, the 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 fact is that you might have something that isn't particularly valuable, but because of who owned it or what it did, that adds that that the value to it in the story that it, it then tells. And I think that's what's interesting. Um, is finding those pieces where there's more. It's more than just uh, a beautiful, expensive thing. It, it's it's a beautiful, expensive thing, perhaps, or, or or a cheap thing, but it's that story behind it and what that can bring. Sure. Uh, a general question then: What's the most difficult part of being a curator? Well, I mean, I think my job's quite unusual because uh, I mean, it really depends on the size of the museum. But of course, you've got sort of small regional museums and then you've got big national museums. And so in some cases, like the national museums, a, cura- a curator would be quite a specific role dealing with, with, with certain elements of the kind of interpretation and, and management of the collection. Although even then you'd have other people helping in those aspects. Uh, whereas with my role, um, it's, it's, quite, it's quite a general role so it's a very loose term curator um because i'm i'm dealing with collections management i'm doing um audience engagement i'm i'm working in sort of all areas of the museum but because it's such a small museum and a small collection you know i'm sort of overseeing all aspects um of that area and and that makes it quite difficult because you've always got to have your sort of different head on as you think about what what needs to be done situations uh but i actually can't what was your question well okay here's a here's a follow-up then what's your background i mean i mean how do you where did you acquire the expertise to become this all-round in charge of this uh, type of person well i would say for anyone who's sort of listening to this and thinking about the world of going you know going into the world of being a curator or, or, or museums i mean my background my specific background is in sort of first in the arts and then and then within conservation in the museum sector. But actually, you learn an awful lot about how museums operate by working in museums. And so whatever role you take on, you know, the, the experience you gain from doing that will really help in, in seeing how things are done, even if it's not you specifically doing them, but how other departments deal with things. And so I think for me, getting this job, I had the combination of experience working in a national museum before, but also I had background working with clocks in that I had been working with the collection at the Royal Observatory in Greenwich. And I'd sort of undertaken in studies to sort of understand clocks and watches and the actual sort of technical aspects of them. So it was a, it was a case of having that kind of general understanding of museums uh, with the specific understanding of how clocks and watches operate. Okay, so uh, again, another sort of general question. 
I understand you, you're saying you've got this experience and you've got this uh, kind of background. In terms of doing the job that you're doing kind of day to day, what does it makes you good at that job? What are the kind of skills, not, not, not necessarily technical skills, but you know, what is it about you that is good at that job? Um, I think, oh, that's a difficult question. What makes me good at my job? Um, well, I think it's sort of you have to have a bit of a can-do attitude. Although sometimes I think when I talk to my colleagues, they probably think I'm having a can't-do attitude because I'm often the one to say, have we thought about this? Um, but of course, that's just sort of coming up with the possible issues that might arise if we if we decide to do something. But yeah, it's essentially having that kind of, well, I'll I'll see if I can get that done, particularly with a job like this, where there are so many different things to be responsible for. You know, you, you don't know about everything that needs to be done. So you have to sort of have that attitude of, well, I'll look up how, how does one do that? Or I'll talk to someone that I know who does do that, you know, so it's having that kind of pragmatic approach. Also, you know, I, I have to talk to people about the collection and, and uh, you know, there's, there's the sort of public facing side of it. And uh, as much as I don't like doing it, I do think that I have quite a good, I, I feel like I'm quite sort of approachable and, and that people, you know, that I'm, I'm able to sort of talk to people um, about the collection in a sort of friendly, <laughs> approachable way. Okay. I don't know everything there is to know about it, but, you know, the one thing I've learned in life is the more you learn about the stuff, about things the more you realize you don't know about things so it's you know and that's what makes a job interesting is you're always learning about new things which is you know keeps one entertained and um occupied sure and when you are uh, sort of asking others uh, uh for help or assistance or i guess collaboration you know is it quite a small community do the, do, do people tend to want to work together i imagine because you're not sort of you're not a company trying to build and sell watches that that people I, I guess sort of follow the interest more rather than you know what can we what can we market out of this it's more it's more driven by well I guess the, I guess the love of the subject and the love of the uh, collection yeah definitely I mean I suppose it depends who I'm talking to but I mean that I mean certainly the museum world is is a relatively small sector and and so when there are questions that relate to actual the sort of administration or or the management of the museum side of things, there are people I can turn to, and and uh, you know I have the science museum sort of besides me, and there's there's departments there that I can ask for help, and and as I said, because it's a fairly small world, it doesn't take long before you start to recognise people that you've worked with um, in other institutions um, who come and go. And, you know, and people, the point of a museum is to sort of, is to be there for the public. Um, So they are generally pretty helpful. I mean, obviously, everyone is uh, pressured by time and and their own workload. So you have to kind of bear that in mind. But everybody is always very helpful. And then within the the sort of clock making world and and the horological world and the information and expertise that people have relating to actual sort of technical things. Yeah, I mean. Clockmakers, or, or as they're sometimes referred to as clockies, are um, generally a, a, a fairly friendly bunch and happy to help. So, do you get the feeling that, or do you know, I suppose, if you know the big watchmakers, do they appreciate the uh, the heritage that you're preserving? Do they, do they sort of enjoy the fact that that is that is being preserved, or do you get the feeling more that uh, you know they're they're just, they're just now companies that are there to sell stuff? 
Um, I, d- I mean, I think if you really kind of appreciate your brand and your and and your craft, you can't not um, recognize the importance of the history and the development of these pieces. So yeah, absolutely. I think any any um, brand would recognize the importance um, of ours or our collection as of, of one of national importance relating to the subject. But of course, yeah, a lot of brands today aren't, you know, heritage is, is one aspect of it, but they're there to sell a product. Um, but what's actually quite interesting is a lot of the names that our collection are associated with, which are from the late 17th um, to the 18th century, you know, the people who are involved in the trade at that point um, are, you know, very well recognised names in the industry. And I can use, I can say there are certain um, examples of people, of companies that have actually produced or, or set up companies using these people's names. Almost as a way of saying, you know, that it's the original, um, I'll give you the example, George Graham. You know, he he was alive um, in the 18th century, and and you know the company, well, he was trading as himself, um, and the company today is is by no way linked to him um, from history. So so absolutely, these these names are important to to um, to the industry, and are certainly being used in that way. But of course, yeah, I mean, uh, a lot of the manufacturers today are not based in the UK. We do have some, but the majority are in Switzerland um, and there's some in um, France and Germany. And, you know, I, I, I think there are many other collections that deal with the history throughout Europe uh, in a similar manner. Is there a... Well, I'm, I'm trying to think of something that, with it, <laughs> that if you gave me the answer, I would also be able to recognise what it meant. Is there like a piece or a... I guess even a period of time or something like that, where you're really you're really trying to hunt things down for the collection. Is, is there a sort of grail of watches or clocks that uh, you haven't quite managed to get yet? Um, well, there are certain areas that are um, well represented in the collection, and others that are not. I think it's specific makers that we have an interest in. But then there's certain types of clocks that we haven't ever sort of got for the collection. I think, uh, and this sort of goes back to sort of what I was earlier talk uh, um, talking about earlier about the kind of collecting policy and and how we look at the twentieth and twenty first century as much as we might look at the seventeenth and then eighteenth century. But I think there is always going to be an interest in anything that relates to the company, and you know the company's prominence was was particularly so in the uh sort of 17th and 18th centuries in fact that sort of tallies with when london was was at the sort of top of its game um so any maker that is associated with the company and also kind of associated with the best quality work we have an interest in definitely and uh let's say money no object resources of of any kind no object and anyone that you need help from says yes and all that sort of thing. What would you do with the collection? Is there like a big sort of dream plan that you could say if everything fell into place and if money was no object and resources were no object, we would do this? 
Oh, uh, well, I mean, that is an interesting question, because it's something that I'm actually talking, you know, with my with my colleagues about right now. I mean, there's there's the um, 400th anniversary of the of the company in, in 10 years time. Right. And, uh, you know, I was saying, you know, it would be nice to be able to sort of pin some things off that anniversary in terms of sort of refreshing the gallery. But as you say, resources and finances do in a way. But I think for me, it's I, one of the things I feel about the gallery and the way it's laid out is it, in some respects, it's great because you've got everything on display. You know, if you go in there, you're just sort of, you, you just turn around and there's just stuff. Um, and and it, it, minimalism is certainly not our, um, is uh, is not, not the way we like to do things. Sure. But I suppose if you don't know anything about the subject, it can be a little bit overwhelming. So it'd be really nice to be able to kind of, get the interpretation to a level where we could really help people understand the craft and the trade better without overwhelming them with the jargon and the sort of technical aspects which are also included for those who do know about the collection. So I would like to see kind of the interpretation um, changed. But, you know, it's a difficult one because there are, it would always be nice to have more space so that we could, we could show more things but as I said you know it's just trying to kind of weigh up having more stuff on display and not getting too overwhelming so really to to sort of nail down that 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 fine line between educating people um, and providing them with with all the information they might need but some of the things we're already getting on with is uh, for example we're doing a photography project so that we can least get the collection digitized so that people have access to the collection you know particularly in the last sort of 18 months where 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 they haven't been able to get into the museum so easily you know the ability to be able to see that information um, and make it available for anyone with internet access you know to be able to kind of ramp that up and get more of that done would be good Uh, but then I suppose there is a fine line that if you just put everything um, onto a virtual world uh, will anyone ever come to see it But I would definitely like to kind of do more to try and help people understand what's going on inside clocks and watches, and particularly with um, clocks, because, you know, from the outside, uh, you know, old clocks, they they could come across as a little bit boring because it's just a kind of wooden box that's just ticking. But when you actually start to understand what's going on inside and how everything is, you know, there's there's no power to it, It's, it's, it's... you know, all you have to do is just wind up uh, either a spring or, or a weight and it will just keep itself going for a week um, and how it achieves that and how it achieves really, you know, accurate timekeeping uh, in some cases. You know, the technology behind it is really interesting. When you start to understand that, I think it makes the subject come alive. Um, so it'd be really nice to be able to do more of that, sort of explain to people why these things are interesting. Because certainly for me, I wasn't necessarily interested in clocks when I was younger. Some people definitely are, um, but you know, I hold my hands up and go, no, I, you know, I, I like to know how things work, but I'd never sort of stared at a clock and gone, wow, <laughs> what sure. marvel in front of me. But once I started to understand um, what they were all about and how they operated, you know, they they became in- really interesting things, and I think uh, that would be nice to be able to sort of just, particularly in this day and age where everything is digital, and you know, you get your your time from your phone which comes from gps signals you know it just it's so arbitrary to what what these things um do 
And the fact that they, as I said, they kind of keep themselves going and they've almost got like a heartbeat. And particularly with watches, when you hear mechanical watches running and they, they're ticking away, there's just something very engaging about that. Excellent. Uh, well, we're almost out of time. So I've got a last question for you. The, well, it's going to say ever popular, uh, maybe not so popular, but uh, uh, ever present sort of question is that I'm afraid to say you cannot be a curator of the Clockmakers Museum anymore. What I'm going to do, though, uh, to make up for this sudden termination, is that I am going to offer you three different jobs. What I would like to know is which, if any of the three, uh, would be good, uh, and and why. It's 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 more about what what it is about you that uh, would enjoy this or be good at it, or all right, uh, at least find it worth giving a go. I suppose. Um, so I'm thinking of them off the top of my head, as I always do, uh, which means that I'm. Even as I'm saying this, I'm playing for time. But let's say uh, you can be a chef. There we go. There's 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 one option. You can be a chef. Uh, you can be a magician. I'm not saying magic's real. I'm, I mean, you know, like a performing uh, magician. Or you can be a forest ranger. Those are, those are your three options. Uh, chef, magician, or forest ranger. Do uh, to do any of these jobs? Do I have to have previous skills, or is it just uh, no? You just you've just been given the job. Uh, okay. you, you're bringing to it whatever you've got already. So somehow you've you've aced the interview, um, and they're not going to pry too deeply into your actual paper qualifications. That's that. I think that's easy because uh, because uh, well, I'd love to be a magician. But I'm really rubbish at deceiving people. <laughs> so okay. This wouldn't be. I'd be the crappiest music, music, um, music musician, <laughs> magician ever. So yeah, that's that's a definite no for me. Um, and okay. actually, I think it's almost nicer when you watch magic because you don't know how it's done. And so I think if I became a magician, I'd be really boring because well, I'd probably I'd be sworn by their code, so you wouldn't be able to tell anyone how how the things are done. But you know, sure. you couldn't enjoy magic anymore. And I love magic. So that's a definite no. Chefing, well, I love cooking. Um, and uh, I like to, I like baking as well. I mean, I like anything that involves food going into me at the end of it. Um, you know, that's a win. But having to cook for other people all the time, <laughs> it's probably a no, because uh, it's really stressful. I used to work in a restaurant or a few restaurants when I was was younger and uh, the chefs were always super grumpy sure and always really super stressed so I don't think I'd want that kind of lifestyle but forest ranger would yeah I think I could do that job because I do love the outdoors um and I love you know I'm quite an active person and I I feel like I'd be quite good at you know it's a physical job and I, I think I could take that side of things yeah, I think the chance to have a job where you're outdoors quite a lot would be pretty awesome. So that would be the one for me. Brilliant. Uh, well, thank you so much for uh, speaking to me uh, today, Anna. Uh, enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you very much. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, it certainly made me think about lots of stuff. It reminded me how odd the livery companies are, or how they might seem to an outsider at least. So I think I'm going to try and talk to people from uh, a few more if I can. Also, Anna raised something mentioned in an earlier episode by the conservator Elizabeth, if you remember. Uh, sort of that concern about how to deal with all the stuff in a museum if you're trying to keep it in perpetuity. Where do you put it all? 
and how do you put it to good use? I think I will try and get some more museum people in to quiz them about that. Anyway, the front and back matter of this episode has been pretty brief, as you can tell. Uh, We're pretty much out of time. Check out andwhatdoyoudo.co.uk for, well, everything really, all the episodes and uh, a few bits and pieces of supplementary matter. And, in particular, drop me an email at andwhatdoyoudopodcast at gmail.com. I am always looking for more interviewees. Until next time, take care, speak soon. Mm -hmm.